Today's reading is from 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 13, from verses, 1, uh, verses 4 to 13. And it's also in your leaflet and on the screen. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, as even I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Keep the reading um, open in front of you. And there is a, uh, an outline in your leaflets that may help you follow along and helps, helps signpost where we're going. Now, I know this is, this is a bit of a difficult thing. When I, when I did this at the early service, I didn't see too many people do it. But have a look around you this morning. Have a look at the people sitting next to you, behind you, in front of you. What, what do you see? Do you see old friends or perhaps new ones? Maybe people, well, you, you know who they are but, and, and you know their names, but you don't really know them. Maybe you're here as a newcomer or visitor and there's, you're surrounded by people you've never met or spoken to before. Maybe you're kind of looking at this strange group of people who get up early on a Sunday morning to sit together, listen to me going on for a, I don't know how long, and while everyone else is in bed? Or, do you see the body of Christ? What do you see? Well, last week, we went to the doctors with the Corinthian church as we looked at the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13 from 1 Corinthians. Today, as we complete looking at chapter 13, we're going to be going to the opticians. You see, while chapter 13, this famous love chapter, is so familiar to us, what is perhaps less familiar is its context as an important corrective lesson to the Corinthian church. And I hope for those of you here who were here last week, you'd have seen how Paul takes the presenting problem of division and disunity within the church and diagnoses a selfish selfishness and boastful pride, particularly in their use of spiritual gifts. Paul's remedy 
is a healthy dose of one another serving love, that most excellent way of other, other person-focused love. So today we're actually going to explore how Paul fleshes that out and explore, explores this theme of love. However, as, we, as we've just read, Paul states that for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. And the old King James, um, King James Bible translated, we see through a, dark, through a glass darkly. We need to be careful about what it is that we actually see, particularly on a passage that is so familiar to us. Towards the end of last year, Elizabeth and, and I, my daughter Elizabeth and I, we both had some quite nasty eye infections and we managed to get an appointment at an eye clinic at hospital, which involved quite a, a thorough eye check and um, examination. We went into quite a small examination room and I was asked to sit in a chair facing the door. And I could see in the door there was a window and, and behind it there was a screen. So I was asked to look at the letters that came up in ever-reducing sizes. Um, when I'd finished and it was Elizabeth's turn, I then realised that I wasn't looking through a window in a door, looking out into the corridor outside. I, I thought that was a bit strange, but once I'd done it, I realised that it was a mirror on the door and the letters were coming up on a screen above my head. So actually, I had been deceived by the mirror, thinking that there was more distance than there was. We need to be careful in what we are seeing and understanding as we look around those people around us and as we examine this passage. As you see in your outline, we're going to be thinking about how we see others, how we see ourselves, how we see Jesus, and then how we see our destination. So, Paul has told the Corinthians that they should be using their gifts to serve one another in a loving way. What does that love look like? Well, today, perhaps more than ever, the word love is a vague and overused term which requires some definition and substance to be made meaningful. Now, in English, our word love has a wide range, doesn't it? And the context gives its meaning. So, you might say, oh, I love him, he's a, he's a great guy. Or you'd say, oh, yeah, I'd love a cup of tea. Or, oh, our love is unbreakable. Or, yeah, I love my sister's. In the ancient Greek language, there were a number of words used to describe different aspects of love. For example, there was philos, which is kind of brotherly love that we might have for our friends or comrades. There was eros, which was sexual love. Storge, which was a familial love, love between parents and children, between siblings. And there's the term that is used in this passage, agape, which is defined as a warm regard for and interest in other people. Now, 
ancient Greek is a dead language. So to work out the meaning of words, scholars have to look at how the word is used and compare it to how it's used in other literature. Now this word, agape, didn't really have much usage, as far as we can establish, before the New Testament. And it seems to have been really picked up by the New Testament writers who used it to explain for believers the love that Christ has had for us and the love that they should have for one another. And I hope as we explore this passage, you'll begin to see what that might look like. It's a love, according to the scholar N.T. Wright, that, um, according to N.T. Wright, Paul stresses that this kind of love is about those who worship God in Christ functioning as a family in which every member is accepted as an equal member, no matter what their social, cultural or moral background. And the existence and flourishing of such a community is the thing that is going to reveal to the pagan world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is what it claims to be. This is what agape love is meant to mean. But what about Paul? How does he describe this love to the Corinthians, the love that they're meant to have towards their brothers and sisters in Christ? Paul begins the list with two positives. Have a look at it. Love is patient and love is kind. So these two aspects represent love's necessary passive and active responses towards others. Now, patience can mean to remain tranquil while waiting. But the word in the Greek here means to to bear up under provocation without complaint. And it's sometimes also translated as forbearing or long-suffering. It's also a word that around this time was described the, the attitude for those who had had money borrowed for them and the, the way that you should wait and be patient for the person who'd borrowed the money from you. Now, we know in 1 Corinthians 6 that there, were, there was some kind of legal action between two of the members of the Corinthian church. So perhaps it's not just a term that Paul is using independently of the situation he's writing to. Perhaps a more patient, forbearing attitude may have led the one who felt defrauded to take a less aggressive approach to the brother that they took to court. Kind refers to an active reaching out through deeds that demonstrate compassion and mercy. It's not just a having a nice, kind thought about someone. The early church father, called John Chrysostom, said that such kindness works to appease and extinguish the community fires set by the angers of others, not only by enduring nobly, but also by soothing and, comf- and comforting Thus, they cure the sore and healthy wound of passion. Now, an example of this I experienced while I was at university. A friend of mine had quite a large, lively um, house party, as students are, you know, every now and then want to do. At its conclusion, a number of the departing guests were 
apparently quite noisy as they left. And the next day, one of the neighbours confronted uh, my friend about this. And so the housemates all clubbed together to buy this, this lady some flowers as an apology. Um, then later on in that day, the lady returned to the house um, with a bottle of wine and an apology for overreacting. <laughs> it's that kind of kindness that um, Paul is talking about here. He then gives eight negatives of what love is not. Firstly, love does not envy. Once again, Paul is choosing his words specifically. 1 Corinthians 3.3 tells us that there is jealousy and quarrelling among the Corinthians. And it wasn't just about, about their spiritual gifts but about their social standing, wealth and capacity between different people in the church. Paul is telling his readers that the status-seeking, non-Christian culture slipping into their church was incompatible with love, which doesn't begrudge status and honour in another person, but delights in it. Paul says that love does not boast, It doesn't heap praise on oneself with obtrusive exaggeration. Paul had warned the Corinthians throughout the letter about their boasting. And he may have particularly had people in mind who are boasting about having special kind of wisdom or a knowledge or of being particularly spiritual. Love is not proud, Paul tells us. The word for proud is the same word Um, that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 3. He says, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to, but whoever loves God is known by God. Be loving people, Paul is telling the Corinthians, not proud, puffed up, ones. Love does not dishonour others. And this refers to disgraceful, dishonourable or indecent behaviour. And again, it's an example would be perhaps the sexual immorality that's happening within the church or the humiliation of the poor at Lord's Supper that Paul has already spoken of. Paul says love is not self-seeking. Literally, this says love does not seek its own. And the way that the Greek is constructed, it seeks its own, and you could put anything in there. But the implication is that it does not seek its own self-interest, but rather that of others. Love is not easily angered, Paul writes, It's not a cantankerous old man, easily provoked to anger by those around them, or cantankerous old lady, I guess. But it's that attitude, it's not easily riled. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Originally, apparently, this was a a mathematical and accounting term. The one who loves does not take notice of the evil done against them, in the sense that no record is kept waiting for God or for man to settle the score. 
Paul tells us love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. Love implies a commitment to justice. Paul then ends with four positives that love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. The first and last words are about that ongoing determination and commitment, while the second and third are less to do with a naive optimism, but more about a willingness to persist in faith in other people. So, this is Paul's most excellent way, a way of patience and kindness, not a boasting pride or dishonouring others. It's not self-seeking way. It's not a way of easy anger. It keeps no record of wrongs, nor does it delight in evil. It's a way of truth that perseveres, protects, hopes, and trusts. What a wonderful way. Who wouldn't want to be part of a community on a journey on this way? Don't we all want to be loved like this, accepted, protected, cared for, built up, treated patiently, kindly, and justly? Of course we do. But while this isn't Paul's main reason for using that image of a mirror that he uses in verse 12, looking into a mirror, the first thing we see is ourselves, isn't it? And this is, this is a challenge. We want this for ourselves, but is it the way that we look at others? Just as Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to act towards their brothers and sisters in Christ, can you imagine them hearing this letter or, or reading it and just reflecting on that pointed language as he highlights their own behaviour, realising this is not the way that they had been following? And what about us? When we read this wonderful list and think about those in our church family, do you reflect and think, I've been doing this over this last week. You know, well, I'm not really doing this for my nearest and dearest, let alone my brothers and sisters in Christ, even those who I get on well with. So while mirrors show us our appearance, God's word, and particularly here, shows us our own hearts in stark reality. Now, there is a view that passages like this show that love should be a matter of willful action rather than an emotion or a feeling. And while this is true to a certain degree, that agape love does imply somewhat, some outward act towards others, I think that emphasis between the dichotomy between rational thought and will on one side and emotions on the other, is, is actually a false one. You see, our emotions and feelings are indicators of what we believe, what we value, what we really believe and value, and as such, are an integral part of our reason and our ethics. Both our emotions and our wills reveal our hearts, the centre of who we are, 
what we value and who we serve. And this is why lists like this are so challenging. Such a lofty, elevated, other-person-focused call to service shines a light on ourselves. We are impatient and kind. We envy, we boast, and we are proud. Not always, perhaps, but sometimes. Sometimes we do dishonour others. We can be self-seeking. We can be easily angered. Or is that just me? We, we do hold grudges sometimes. And maybe there are rare occasions where we do delight in evil and we don't rejoice with the truth. We don't always protect, trust, hope and persevere with others. So how is it we can achieve this most excellent way? Maybe you're here this morning and, has, and have never experienced even a glimpse of this kind of loving community. Maybe you've been in churches for years and you've never seen this. I hope that's not the case. Perhaps you've been a disciple of Christ for years, but you realise your own failings and weaknesses, maybe in particular aspects of this list, or towards certain people. So how can we transform our hearts, who we are, change our character? How can we become more loving in this most excellent way? Well, rather than looking at others or looking at ourselves, we in fact need to look at Jesus. Did you notice how Paul phrases verses 4 to 7 there? He doesn't say, the person who loves is patient and kind. He doesn't even say, patience and kindness are loving ways to behave. He says, love is patient and kind. He personifies love. Now, perhaps this is an understandable poetic or rhetorical effect. But the characteristics he describes, particularly talking about love not holding a grudge, that's something that someone does, not an abstract idea. The characteristics he describes point us to the character of God and particularly the person of Jesus of Nazareth. You see, love only comes to life as a person, doesn't it? We don't learn to love by trying. It's not an abstract set of principles to, to, to memorise and, and put into practice. We learn to love when someone loves us. Before love is something you do, it's someone you've met. Now, in this world, you know, I hope that for example, our parents have been good examples of a sacrificial, other-person-focused love. But unfortunately, perhaps for many of you, this has not been the case. We need a love that always protects, perseveres and never fails. And as a parent myself, I know that I 
and flawed. And I know that I will let my children down, unfortunately. And even the best of parents will pass away. In presenting this personified list, Paul points us towards Jesus, the one who has loved us perfectly and continues to love us. How could Paul not write about a patient, long-suffering love without thinking of the one who was patient and long-suffering on the cross to the point of feeling forsaken by his heavenly Father, bearing the weight of the world's sin? How could Paul not write about a love that keeps no record of wrongs without thinking of the one who said about those who were killing him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How could Paul not write about a love that always hopes without thinking of the one who offered a dying thief next to him the hope of paradise with him today? Nobody can say those things to us but Jesus. How could Paul not think of the one who looked down from the cross and saw his friends had betrayed, denied or forsaken him? Who saw the crowd mocking and jeering him and in the greatest act of love ever, he stayed there until it was finished. Jesus' love never failed. So if we read verses 4 to 8, not as something we need to do, but as something that has been done for us, to save us, this truth should humble our own self-centeredness, remind us of our Lord and King who we serve, and stir in our hearts a love for Christ and for those around us, that will transform and change both our emotions and our wills to act in this most excellent way of love. How might this look in our lives, though, here at Trinity Hills? Well, I think there are some hints in verses 8 to 12. Paul returns to the subject of his spiritual gifts that have been the catalyst for this important treatise on love. These things that the Corinthians have been prizing, although gifts of grace, of the Holy Spirit, are only temporary and will pass away. There is something infinitely better coming. Paul reminds the Corinthians to kind of look at their destination as God's loved people and at the time when perfection or completeness comes, that they will realise this and see this truth. Now, most commentators see this time to be the time of Christ's second coming and the full consummation of the kingdom of God. Well, like children growing into adults, we too need to be growing in this most excellent way, putting aspects of our own sinful, self-loving past behind us and growing in these attributes that he talks of. 
Now maybe you could ask someone who knows you best, and a parent or a spouse, well, am I more patient, kind, trusting, hopeful, persevering than I was two years ago? Do I envy, boast or dishonour others less than I did this time last year? Do you see pride, anger or grudges in my life? Could we do that with someone we trust? Could we do that with our brothers and sisters in Christ here at Trinity Hills? Paul also reminds us that our experience and understanding of these things are also only merely a reflection in a mirror. I pray that these words will be helpful, but they are not the full picture. Here, I think, is where Paul, the reason Paul is particularly using that image of a mirror. I think he's referring to a passage in Numbers where um, God comes and speaks to Aaron, Miriam, and Moses. We read... When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams, but this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Now, the word, the Hebrew word that is translated in our Uh, English Bibles here in verse 8 and it's translated as riddles. When this was translated into ancient Greek it was translated as a mirror. Now at this time when Paul is writing we're not talking about the silver and glass lined mirrors that we have today. When we look into a mirror we see a pretty accurate accurate depiction. In those days, it may have been mirrors were polished stone or polished metal, copper or bronze, for example. Now, these could easily become scratched, dented or damaged. At the time of Paul writing, apparently glass mirrors were beginning to be used. They were cover metals with glass, but they were likely to be very small curved and the glass itself would have been of varying thicknesses, once again producing a distorted experience, a distorted vision. Paul is trying to highlight to the Corinthians that even even having the revelation of God in Jesus, our experience of God now is looking like looking in a distorted, cloudy mirror compared to the experience of Moses meeting with God to face to face or our experience when completeness comes, when we too will meet with God face to face. Our attempts to see either ourselves or others or even God are distorted by the limitations of this sinful, broken world that we live in. When perfection comes we, like Moses did, will see God face to face and we will know 
like we are now known by God. Now, I think that is incredible. And I think this is incredible in three ways. Firstly, it's incredible that despite the fact that God knows us completely now, he still loves us in this most loving way. It's incredible that one day, because of God's love for us, we will know God like he loves us now. And that's just mind-blowing. I think the other thing this shows is that because we will have no need of gifts of the Spirit to serve God or serve one another in this time of perfection, I presume that we will also somehow fully know each other and we will fully love each other. Now, the old saying is that to to get to know someone, you have to walk a mile in their shoes. Well, I think this truth that we look forward to and that idea of getting to know people is surely a good way to love each other better. Knowing others better and being known ourselves is surely a way to love each other better. So, do we really spend quality time with each other? Do we get to know each other? So, do we look out for people we don't know and make that effort? Even with those people who we, we know to a certain degree, and perhaps we talk about the game on Saturday or how the garden's going or, or what the job is, do when we ask someone, how are you? If we listen to that answer, do we ever say, but how are you really? How are you going? What's on your heart at the moment? What's troubling you? What's bringing you joy? Can I pray about that? Now, this can be difficult, revealing ourselves, taking the time and effort to get to know people. But we need to make those opportunities. Perhaps become part of a growth group if you're not already. Go to someone's house at the weekend together. Open your house to others. As Kez said, it's a great opportunity to get to know people. But it's a way for us to bring that future destination into the reality of today. N.T. Wright, again, writes, the church must be working in the present on the things that will last into God's future. Faith, hope and love will do this. Prophecy, tongues and knowledge so highly prized in Corinth will not. They are merely signposts to the future. When you arrive, you no longer need the signposts. Love, however, is not just a signpost. It is a foretaste of the ultimate reality. Love is not merely the Christian duty, it is the Christian's destiny. The most excellent way of love seeks the good, the advantage, the building up of others. Love, according to the Apostle, is the dynamic, creative endeavour of finding ways to pursue the welfare of others 
rather than one's own interests. Trinity Hills, brothers and sisters, in our relationships with each other, just as we have been undeservedly undeservedly and sacrificially loved, may we demonstrate to each other and to the world this most excellent Christ-like way of love. Amen.